Welcome to our Dream to Rise podcast and this is our 39th episode of season 2. This is your host Cynthia Concordia. As healing unfolds, the grip of past trauma loosens, making space for newfound joy, authenticity, and connection. Releasing past trauma isn't merely about forgetting or burying painful memories. It's a profound process of acknowledgement, acceptance, and ultimately liberation. By courageously facing the shadows of the past, we can reclaim our power and rewrite our narrative. We learn to untangle the knots of pain and fear that have held them captive, recognizing that their worth isn't defined by their past experiences. Instead, they discover resilience, strength, and the capacity for growth. There comes a pivotal moment when one must confront their past traumas to pave the way for a liberated future. We're fortunate to have with us our special guest, Miss Lou Henwood from United Kingdom, who is also known as the Singing Zookeeper. She has directly helped hundreds of people release themselves of past trauma, tame their inner, inner critic, and negative thinking to release themselves of the blocks that get in the way of living a truly happy life. Lou will share with us how she was able to deal with her own chronic depression that she struggled with for so many years due to childhood trauma. Take note, this did not stop her from living her purpose now, which is helping others overcome their trauma. Without further ado, let us all welcome Miss Lou Henwood. Welcome to our listeners. Welcome to our next episode of our uh, Dream to Rise. And uh, we have a special guest who's uh, who's been uh, who had who's in UK, no, and. She she is known as to be the 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 zoo. What's this? The zookeeper. The zookeeper, no. And um, the singing zookeeper, and and she's a transform transformative guide, helping individuals overcome past traumas. And um, and silence their inner critic to lead genuinely happy lives. So she will share with us uh, her own battle with chronic depression rooted in childhood trauma. And she pursued uh, various therapies, but found true healing by embracing self-compassion and love. And Lou works with people from all around the globe, both individually in group working for both private and corporate clients, making an impact on their on others' lives. And uh, without further ado, I just want to listen to her story. And I'm sure you all want to listen to her story. Let us welcome Lou Henwood. Lou, Hi. welcome, welcome. Thanks, Cynthia. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> I'm not going to drop into Filipino talk right now. <laughs> yes, I did mention about the Philippines because I want you to mention that. <laughs> I will, I will. <laughs> so, okay, let us start. Uh, Lou, uh, if you could share your story, that's usually my objective to share our stories to the world. And what the... Um, what brought you to where you are right now, based from okay. the journey you've experienced? So um, when I was born, I was given away by my mother, my biological mother. And um, all of our childhood experiences impact on how we develop as an adult. Mm -hmm. So I've always had this feeling of being unwanted, unloved, not needed, um, separate to requirements nobody needed me as such don't get me wrong my my adopted parents were fabulous but this is sort of an ingrained belief that I'm you know cast throwawayable disposable mm -hmm. um and then during my very young childhood I had two major operations before the age of five um and that was really quite traumatizing in those days anesthetics weren't particularly good so when I came around from the very first anesthetic it was an incredibly violent experience because I reacted badly to the anesthetic and I was tied to the bed so that I wasn't fitting and jumping about and my mother and my uh, mother's sister was holding me down and I remember that very clearly so that was traumatizing I was around about two maybe three years of age at that point and then I had the second operation. Um, I don't remember that being as traumatic, but my assumption is it was, um, but I've just totally blanked it from my mind. And then when I was um, just around about the age of six, I was taken away from my best friend. We lived next door to each other and he was my light. He was my soul. He was my, you know, other half as such. I, I was absolutely we were inseparable from each other but my mom and dad moved moved house so I had to move as well obviously I was only six so at the age of six I dropped into a really deep depression but in those days we're talking about the 1960s they didn't really understand depression in children they didn't really understand what was going on with me and my mom and dad didn't really understand what was going on with me and I certainly didn't I was only six meh I just knew that I felt incredibly miserable and very, very bleak. Um, at one point, doctors were trying to put me on Valium, which my dad was wise enough to say, no, I'm not putting my six-year-old daughter on Valium. Um, and during that time, um, I used a technique, which I now realize is a valid technique, was breath work. I used to use breath work uh -huh. just to get myself out of this state of bleakness I was feeling. I used to just do this really heavy, deep breathing. And I would just go into, an, you know, almost an altered state of mind. And I've recently started studying breath work. And actually, it's a very valid technique. But that's how I coped. During that time, I get the violins out because I went to a convent school. I was educated by nuns in a convent school. And it was an academic school, high fee, fee paying school. Uh, so my parents were paying a lot of money for me to go to this school. I was dyslexic and in no way at all academic. So I failed miserably all of the time. And I'm a very intelligent, I was very bright, very intelligent child. But my reading wasn't brilliant because it was interrupted by these two operations I had. My attention wasn't there. So I was constantly in trouble. 
So by the time I left school, I came out of school with a whole heap of shame, absolute shame. The amount of times I was warned that I would go to hell. You know, you're a bad girl. You're going to go to hell. You'll never get to heaven. All mm -hmm. of the, that type yes. of shame that they used to dump on me. Not all of the nuns were bad. I will say that. But a lot of them were very naive and would use that type of, of um, behavior towards me. So I came out of school feeling that I wasn't any better than a slug, you know, walking along the ground. I was really not worth anything. And I had this desperate need to belong as well. And I didn't belong anywhere. So I was pretty damn miserable. And this isn't for people to go, oh, I feel really sorry for her. Don't. I did. I could do all that by myself. And I did feel sorry for myself. And as I was growing up, I go from job to job to job to job. Because every job I went into, I felt miserable. I felt unhappy. I felt bleak. And of course, being um, unaware, having no self-awareness at all, it was always the company's fault or the manager's fault or the company owner's fault or the product's fault, whatever it was. It was never my fault. It was always somebody else's fault. Then I was very lucky. I, I, I'll reframe that. I'll say it in a slightly different way. I got married uh, with uh, to a quite a narcissistic husband who would gaslight me all of the time and because I didn't have any self-worth or any self-confidence I believed what he said so he bought into my idea of me being depressed and fueled my idea about me being mentally ill I wasn't mentally ill I was just blue and not coping very well but he fueled that now the beauty of uh, that experience was I had my daughter and I realized when my daughter was very little, she would be maybe 18 months. I'm sitting there looking at her thinking, I'm teaching this child how to become me. Mm -hmm. I can't live like this anymore. Can't live like this anymore. So she gave me this fuel to get out. She didn't tell me she was only 18 months, but to get out, to start to live so I could teach her how to grow. And my ex-husband, this is where the gift came in, told me you you can't leave me until you get help so implying that I was totally and utterly uh -huh. messed up in the head you get help and I did absolute butte because my therapist turned around and said do you really think it's all your fault do you really think that you are in the frame of mind that you're in because of x y and z do you think you could step out of it? And I worked with this beautiful coach, a therapist rather than a coach, a transactional analysis therapist, very spiritual man as well. And he started to hold a mirror up to me and started to show me where my gifts were, where my qualities were, because I didn't believe I had any, none, zero. And he was a wonderful man. Anyway, I did split up with my ex-husband. And oh, I you went definitely voiced? With your yeah, husband. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Best thing I ever did. Oh, really? Because uh, isn't it when he suggested to for you to see a therapist? Isn't it? It was his idea. So, but then you 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 did what he asked you to do, but you still uh, divorced him. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what I could see was what was happening was the fact that I was being gaslighted. At home. Ah, it's uh, it still continued. It's still yeah, continued. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. so 
I was constantly being told I was wrong. I was constantly being oh. told by him that I wasn't good enough, etc. But the, the therapist was showing me, actually, that's not true. Let's look at this. So he empowered me. And then when I did split up with my ex-husband, but don't get me wrong, we're on speaking terms now. It's fine. Mm -hmm. But when we when I did split up, I had to stand on my own two feet. I had to grow. I had to start to find my own inner strength. And I did. And boy, have I got strength. And I didn't realize I had it. I was such a victim all the way up to this point. I was such a victim um, and carried on with, you know, finding different jobs. And it, it wasn't working. Uh, you know, it was always somebody else's fault and so on. I'm still pretty unaware of, of how I operated. And then through a really strong push when my daughter went off to university um i had always wanted to live abroad always wanted to live abroad never done it so when she went to university i asked if she would be all right if i left the country yeah no problems mom she was quite an independent young lady so i left went to the other side of the world and ended up in the philippines yay wow <laughs> by the way why did you choose the philippines Oh, that's another long story. I made an investment in the Philippines and it went really badly wrong. We were ripped off. The, the European investors oh. in a hotel complex were really badly ripped off. But out of every piece of adversity, you know this, I don't need to teach you this, out of every adversity comes a jewel somewhere. Yes. Because what happened was I ended up meeting um, Helen and I ended up meeting Trudy. These are the two ladies who live in Manila now. Uh, they became really good friends of mine. I fell in love with the country, just fell in love with the country. But of course, I was seeing it through a tourist's eyes because I would go for two weeks or maybe three weeks, then come back to the UK and go back to work. So when I went to the Philippines to live for the first time, um, Helen had given me a job. It was a real culture shock because I went in there with the eyes of a privileged Western woman and just expected the whole place to operate in the way that I wanted it to operate in. And a lot of expats over there have the same sort of attitude as well. And I was with the expats and we were sort of, oh, well, they should be doing things this way and they should be doing things that way. And how ridiculous duh, duh, duh. being really critical and really sniffy. And at some point the penny dropped. It was like, actually, no, no. Let the world operate in the way that the world operates. Me telling everybody else that they're wrong is making me miserable. They're not taking any notice. So just a for instance, you know, for instance, a tricycle. I would a tricycle is a, a form of public transport for your listeners, by the way. You know this. But a tricycle, it's like a, a motorbike with a sidecar. It takes about eight to 12 passengers. I would expect one to stop if I put my hand out and it didn't. It would always slow down and I'd get really infuriated that this thing didn't stop so I couldn't so I could get on it. And I didn't have the, the wherewithal to actually observe everybody else who watched the thing slow down, would trot up behind it, hop on it. Oh, no, I'd, I'd got to have it my way, the way I wanted it. It had got to stop for me because I, and I had that attitude and. This is really exaggerating how a lot of us operate is the fact that we expect the world outside of us to operate in the way that we want it to operate. And it doesn't. So the Philippines gave me a beautiful gift 
Because as soon as I realize that actually, if I just let that go and stop trying to control everybody and everything that I saw, the feeling of freedom that I had just, it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. I got very sort of sailor V. Okay, whatever. Yep, yeah, fine. During uh, my time there, I had uh, one boss was the barangay captain. And then uh, another person I knew was an artist who was working on the museum that I was working on. And both of them just kept telling me, Lou, let it go. Let it go. And I didn't understand that. Had got no idea. Um, and then what was happening when I was working was that the people who were working for me would tell me something had been done because they were too flipping scared to tell me that it hadn't been done because I was so controlling, <laughs> so controlling. So they'd say, yes, ma'am, it's done. Yes, ma'am, it's all been done. Yes, ma'am. And I'd get to the museum and find it hadn't been done and would lose my top. Now, that actually, I didn't lose my top with anybody in particular. I just lose the plot. Mm -hmm. But actually, again, that was free because in the Western culture, we are not allowed to be bad tempered. We're not allowed to lose our temper. We're not allowed to be angry. It's frowned upon. But over there, I could lose my head and just go really, get really enraged. And they just turn around and go, mad white woman, mad white. And I loved it because my label was the mad white woman. And it was beautiful because oh. I could be me. Oh. I could be. Nobody got angry with me about getting angry. Only me. I got angry with me about getting angry, but nobody else was um, critical of me being angry. It was just, oh, she's the mad white woman. Don't worry about it. And that's how I was treated. It was beautiful. And then the other thing that I noticed all the way through my growing up, I never belonged. I never fitted in anywhere. And of course, going out to the Philippines, am I going to fit in there? No, not at all. Firstly, I'm probably six inches taller than the next person <laughs> secondly i got white skin and at that point i got white hair as well so i stood out like a, a lighthouse and the filipinos as you know don't hold back in being friendly hi mom yeah. how are you doing how is your day where's your husband have you eaten so i i was just like a bleacher beacon so there was no way i could belong so very quickly i let go of this idea that i was going to fit in because I would never fit in there. And again, it was beautiful because it gave me permission to be exactly who I wanted to be. So the gifts I got from actually leaving my culture and going and living in another culture was amazing. Now I'm rambling on and I'll, I'll tell you the reason I was there if you want me to, to slow down a bit to let me know. Yes, please go ahead. But I was um, asked very shortly after I got there if I would project manage uh, the building of a museum. Now, you could bear in mind, I came out of school with no qualifications. Uh -huh. I had got no command of the Filipino language. I got no command of Tagalog or Malinon, which was spoken in that area. Um, I didn't know anything about museums. I didn't know anything about tourism. I didn't know anything about the culture. I didn't know anything about rice farming. So theoretically, I shouldn't have been able to run that, open that museum. 
if I'd have put all of my attention on all the stuff I couldn't do, all of the shame I got from my childhood, all of the messages I got about not being good enough, not being clever enough, not being smart enough, not being able to speak the language, knowing nothing about the industry and so on. If I'd have put my attention there, the thing wouldn't have got built mm -hmm. because I'd have just felt so bad about myself. But and this is what I teach my clients, get into the why. The barangay of Motag, the, the museum's called Motag Living Museum, and it still exists, and it is still getting five-star reviews. I've got to do a bit of bragging because I'm still so proud of my Motag family. Uh -huh. um, What's the name of the museum again? Motag, Motag Living Museum. Motag, M-O-T-A-G. Ah, Motag. Yeah, Motag Living Museum. Okay. And my reason for opening that was that the villagers in Nabaoi and Motag and the local barangays around that area, the barangays for you listeners, the villages in that area, didn't have any form of um, or no ability to get jobs. Jobs were not available. Unless you had owned your own shop, you might be able to get a job in a shop. Uh, but it was all rice farming. That was about it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Elders had got no chance of getting any work. Uh, and youngsters who came out of school with very few qualifications, again, wouldn't get any chance of getting in work. So the income, the area was so poor. It was desperately, desperately poor. Um, and it was poverty in a way that I would never have had an idea of, of how poverty works. But these people were happy. They were beautifully happy. They were content with what they had. But I wanted to give them a, an opportunity to bring more money into the area and also to show the tourists how Filipinos live. True Filipinos, not the people on the party island, because it's very close to Boracay. So that was a party island. Mm -hmm. But the people of uh, Malay, the people of Aklan, how they actually lived and worked. So that was my passion. That was my passion. I wanted to bring tourists off the holiday island onto mm -hmm. the mainland so that firstly they could see how the Filipinos actually lived because there's no written history there. So we only went back to the 1930s. I got all my information from the elders. There's no history. There's no, no research I could do apart from talking to the elders. And uh, the tourists could actually experience. So they would go in and they would pick rice and they would plant rice and they would ride the carabao. The, the uh, tourist, they will oh, have the opportunity to yeah, yeah. experience. Oh, that's oh, nice. Yeah. Uh -huh. They would thresh rice. They got the uh, thresh rice. They'd make pity pig. Uh, they <laughs> watch the elders do weaving. So they, they weave baskets or they weave solidap or they weave nipa. Um, so they physically got involved with everything. And mm -hmm. I, it just hit me up. When I did all this, I was just excited about it all. And I thought, everybody needs this experience. Yes. So I wasn't interested in the fact that I got no qualifications, no museum experience, no tourism experience, didn't know the language, wasn't interested. I was excited and really passionate about bringing tourists in to experience the Filipino way of life and to bring money and opportunity into that particular area. Because every tourist that went to Barakai would have to go through Malai, would have to go through Kataklan, which was two miles up the road. So every tourist had an opportunity to go to this place. And it was that passion that drove me. So what I learned was regardless of 
and I'm going to be universal here, our background, now, regardless of how we're brought up, no matter how many negative messages we have, how many negative messages are instilled in us, how many um, adverse situations we overcame as children, that does not have to dictate our lives. That is not who we are. That's the stuff that needs to be shed. It's almost like a, a tortoise shell. We need to get the tortoise shell off so that we can stand in our own power because we're each and every one of us unique, absolutely unique with our own special gifts. And people get hooked on this idea, oh, I'm special. Uh -uh. Nobody's special, but we are each of us and every single one of us unique. Every single one of us has a gift to bring, but we need to shed our old stuff, our old beliefs around ourselves to step into our magnificence. And we are, we're all amazing. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. When you mentioned about special, but I always tell others because they always belittle themselves, no? And I always tell them, you have a special gift. You are a special. That's why I consider you a special person wherein you have that light which you can share to other people. So that's my way of sharing what uh, the, how the person is uh, I considered as special because of their special gift that they need to use. They don't usually, they're always talk in terms of, oh, the fear, doubts, mm -hmm. and uh, worries. How will I be able to use those gifts? Because I, I have limited resources because I, I, I don't have the confidence. I'm scared what other people would say. But you have those gifts. Just try to remove all those cobwebs and, and the dust so that you'll have a, a clearer picture of what your purpose is. Once mm -hmm. you have a clear picture of uh, your purpose, it's so easy to go through the journey, even though that you face challenges and those challenges, you may also consider them as blessings because it makes you the person you are right now. There's always a gift in yes. every challenge. There is always a jewel in every trigger. You know, when somebody else triggers you and maybe you get angry or whatever the response is, there's always a gift in there somewhere if we can step back long enough to look at it. So, the way I work, I work with clients to re to get them to release their past trauma. And I do this very, very gently through a combination of obviously just discussing what's going on, where their blocks are, what they feel their blocks are. And then I take them through um, a type of hypnotherapy where we very gently go in and find the history of what created the block in the first place. And then I, um, through, again, hypnotherapy and trance, will encourage that part of them to release. Because if you can imagine, I'm going to go, I'm going to draw some pictures here in uh, your head. So if you can imagine, you've got little Johnny, who's two years of age. As a child, if we have adversity happening to us, we can't make sense of it as an adult would. So we put all sorts of meanings on stuff that isn't necessarily uh, true. Mm -hmm. But as a child... We think it's true, but we take those beliefs into our adult life. So if you've got a little Johnny who's two and he's learned how to turn the radio up and his favorite piece of music comes on and he's like, oh, 
and he's absolutely in his element and he's oh just loving life dancing and joyful oh mom comes in will you sit down and shut up johnny is hurt immediately hurt now as a child we see our caregivers or our parents as perfect because we don't have any reference on the outside world to tell us that they're not so when mom comes in angry it can't be mom that's at fault it's got to be in johnny's mind johnny so what's caused mom anger? He can't rationalize that mom's got a deadline. She needs him to be quiet so she can get her deadline done. So he works out the fact that he was having joyful time, having an absolute brilliant time dancing and really getting into being himself. That's wrong. <laughs> snip that bit off. I'm going to snip that off. But that part of him doesn't go away. It still exists. So it sort of lands in almost like in orbit around each of us, we've all got these, and looks out for the same stimulus that caused that pain in the first place. And it would be very painful to get knocked out of his reverie. So when he goes to the school disco and a piece of music comes on and he's like, yeah, I've got to get up and dance. Because mm -hmm. the instinct's there, because he's still that, that same boy, this little part of him is going to go, no, yes, no, don't. The, the girls will beat you up. The boys will laugh at you. Your blazers will do So my job is to teach my clients to calm this little part of them down and to actually get them to stand down. They don't have to be on duty anymore. To relax and allow Johnny to become Johnny. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be anything that dramatic. I was listening to Gabor Mate. He was doing a conference um, about addiction. So the majority of the people in the audience were addicted in some form or other. And he said, in five questions, I will find out why your addiction came about. And he said, I want one person in the audience to put up their hand if they've had a happy childhood. Nobody, as you can well imagine, you've got a whole audience of people who are addicted in some form or other. And then one lady trepidly sort of put her hand up uh, and he started to question her. And within five questions, he he found out that her mum and dad adored each other. She turned around to him and said, I had a happy childhood. Everything in the household was really happy. But what he found out was that mum and dad adored each other so much. So they were cuddling, they were kissing, they were looking into each other's eyes. Beautiful, loving couple. She felt surplus to requirements as a little one. So it doesn't have to be traumatic. It doesn't have to be something really, really excruciating. It can just be a misinterpretation from a child by what she's seen. So she's seeing mom and dad in these gorgeous, loving clinches, and she's going, oh, I'm not part of that. Mm -hmm. oh, but it's not true. But that's her interpretation. And then we take these types of messages into our adult lives and they play around in the subconscious they they constantly run the show but they're not conscious we can't see them so my job get these up into consciousness go oh okay hello little johnny right you can calm down now so we put you down there and let big johnny get up and dance mm -hmm. so that's my job and it's very gentle it's very sweet it's very loving oh lovely lovely and uh how how have you help survivors using all the, the tools which you have just shared? Um, I, okay, so I work with people either in a one-to-one -one situation. Um, so I would work through 
what it was. And I don't take people back into their trauma. Okay. That's one thing I work very vehemently towards because if you have a trauma that you talk about and you relive it and you talk about it and you relive it, all you're doing is re-traumatizing yourself. And you're also increasing your neuro pathways around that trauma. And the brain will always take the easiest route because the brain is quite lazy. So if the widest neuro pathway is the one around that trauma, then your attention is going to go to that all of the time. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly in that space. So my job is to teach people how to step out of the trauma and wipe away the neuro pathways. It doesn't negate it. It's happened, but it stops you living in it. So um, just very simply, I had a, a lady who struggles with fibromyalgia and she has to use crutches. And these crutches come up to about here. They've got braces on the arms and handles here. So she's got two of these things. When I first met her, she was mortified. She was embarrassed. She'd had a really, again, very, very traumatic childhood. Um, and she was mortified. She didn't want to go out. She didn't want to be seen by the public because she was embarrassed. She was really, really embarrassed. Now, um, after spending, um, I think it was about three sessions with her. Firstly, I got her giggling, got her laughing around the use of crutches. And secondly, the trauma that she had, the guilt that she had around certain situations, I got her to let go. She now goes wild swimming. She goes swimming for an hour and a half each day in water that's about 10 degrees. I, I couldn't even wow. think of it. But again, she couldn't have thought of it because in her head, she was an invalid. She couldn't walk properly. She was ashamed of how she looked. She was ashamed of how she uh, moved. Now she's there in a wetsuit diving into locks in Scotland. That's so that's great. one example. I've got many, many examples, that's but that's one. Uh-huh. That's great. And um, what keeps you, um, how do you remain in power and continue what you do? Because I think the main thing for me, and to be perfectly honest, I'm having to learn this, if this makes sense, because I'm, as you can probably tell, I'm quite strong, quite powerful and quite driven. Um, and as a consequence, I quite often neglect me, forget me. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning um, because I've been ill recently. And the reason I got ill was because I'd forgotten to look after myself, that I have to self-care. So for me, every for me, I use the um, the idea of the five bowls, which is a Buddhist um, a Buddhist method. So you have five bowls, and these five bowls you can you can have more than five bowls, but I tend to do five because it's easier, it's more manageable. What is it that you need in your life? So you fill up each of these bowls. So for me, the first thing I need is nature. So if anybody who's seen me on TikTok. There is no TikToks inside. They're all outside me walking. I've got to be in nature every single day. Um, even if it's only for 15 minutes, I've got to be outside. The second one is uh, for me, I've got to dance and I've got to sing. I don't necessarily have to dance or sing with anybody, but I have to tap into something that I love, which is dancing and singing. So that's the second bowl. These are my needs. The third one is to be in community with people because it's very easy doing the job that I do because I work uh, predominantly on Zoom. 
So I'm speaking to people in a 2D setup. So I might have somebody in Australia or somebody in America. Great. But I don't have anybody here. I don't physically have anybody here. So to be in community, because we're primal, we are um, animals. Fundamentally, we're animals, we're mammals and we are gregarious. We, you know, if you look at caveman times, we were in groups, we were in mm-hmm. packs. We need Firstly, the chemical exchange of being with people. We need the emotional exchange of being with people and the feedback, the biofeedback that we get being in people. So that's my third one would be in community. Um, My fourth one is checking out my habits, making sure that I don't stay in a 2D setup all day. It's very easy to stay on your computer, uh, look at your phone, watch the TV. That's incredibly bad for your neurology because you're only looking at stuff in 2D. So to make sure that I'm doing something physically in 3D, so I might sew, I might do crochet, I might paint. Do you know what I mean? So it's something physically in in this world rather than me staring at a screen. So that's my fourth one. And then the and fifth that, one, that shows your your interest also, your passion. So that's what you're telling it in 3D, no? Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh-huh. And then the other one is to make sure that um, I'm eating properly, that I am uh, not overdosing on caffeine, that um, I'm making sure my fluids are up. So I'm you know, physically maintaining myself. And one of those self-care things is a bath. I love to get in the bath. It's one of my favorite things, just to give myself permission to float off in the bath for an hour and do nothing. And we all need that. We all need space. Exactly. And I, you know what? That's the first thing that I always tell my clients as well. To um, health and well-being. Make sure that you take care of yourself because once you take care of yourself, your energy changes. It becomes, the negative energy changes to positive and you are able to transmit that positive energy to other people. So your relationship improves as well. Yep. And Absolutely. when it improves, your performance improves. And when yep. your performance improves, then you view life in a in a different way, full of joy, full of meaning. If you're giving from an empty cup, uh-huh. then you're not giving anything of quality. Uh-huh. So you need to fill your own cup first um one of my teachers is a guy called jamie Cato, who um used to sing with um faithless um and he teaches he's a he's a transformational coach as well he teaches and he tells people to think about it being very british so you've got a teacup and a saucer mm-hmm. and you feed people from the saucer and you constantly keep your own cup and everybody gets the stuff from the saucer it's all good quality but the teacup needs to be full and it is so so important for physical well-being as well as mental well-being to make sure that everything starts here at the air hostesses say this don't they you put on your own oxygen mask first before you give it to anybody else and it really should be a rule of thumb but again we are trained particularly as women and i don't want to be sexist but particularly as women, to look after everybody else. Exactly. And that's how we were raised. Yep. Be, be of service. Look, and you're always the last. 
before mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, feeding or before taking care of others or take them take care of them first before you take care of yourself but i believe it should be the other way take I care agree of yourself you totally mm -hmm. and there's nothing selfish in it yes there's nothing selfish in it because a mom who is tired doesn't have enough to give to the child so the child is more likely to get snapped at Excellent. or ignored or pushed away a mom who is replenished and has got energy has got energy and attention to give to the child yeah so it's never ever selfish to look after yourself first exactly exactly wow great great session we have so what what's your goal for the next 12 months the next 12 months, I am going to be running some corporate workshops, which I'm excited about. And that's teaching um, business leaders how to get teams to pull together without egos getting in the way. Because the issue that you have in workplaces, you know, posturing and, and putting other people down and building each other, you know, I'm better than you, that sort of that sort of attitude. So that um, I'm teaching business leaders to get cohesive teams, cohesive and, and vulnerable teams so they can work together. Continuing with my one-to-one -one work, uh, which is done through Zoom like this. Um, and I'm also going to be running retreats, which I do every year. So I run retreats and that's all around taming the inner critic. And we 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 have a blast. We have an act because healing ourselves doesn't have to be serious. It can be fun. We play. So we do, for instance, a dating game where you have to write down all the stuff that your inner critic says to you. And then you have to sit opposite somebody and say, I find you ever so attractive and I'd love to take you out on a date. But before we go out on a date, this is what I'm like. And you read out all of the stuff that your inner critic says. And eventually the penny drops about how ridiculous the stuff that your inner critic says to you. Um, so we play around with games like that. I do an innocence game. We had a, a, an innocence game a, a few um, months ago where one lady who was really buttoned up, really, really buttoned up, and we did this innocence game. And part of the game is you have to go and sit outside, if the weather allows, because we are in the UK, um, and just look at everything, but you're not allowed to put labels on it. You can't look at a wall and say, oh, there's a wall or there's some grass. You have to look at it through the eyes of a child that's never seen it before. Oh. Uh, and that takes some skill. So she did this work and there was a little uh, girl that was walking along the beam towards her and the penny dropped. She said, my mother would never have allowed me to do that. She came back into the workroom in tears. And I'm like, oh, OK. And she said, I just had the most beautiful gift. She said, because my mother would never have allowed me to walk along a beam like that little girl. And she said, when the little girl, this happened in real time, when the little girl uh, had gone and followed off her mom, she said, I got up and walked along the beam. This lady was about 62 or 63. It's the first time she'd been able to be playful. So my retreats are very playful. Um, and I run online workshops from time to time and courses, online courses, which are hybrid. So a mixture of being in a group, with me leading and then you do some uh you know pre-recorded lessons as well so the one that's going at the moment is consciously creating confidence so it's bringing Beautiful. all your stuff all your negative stuff into consciousness so you can Beautiful. put it aside and just move into the life that you want to live oh beautiful beautiful so again before we end uh what 
simple advice would you like to share to our listeners? Be kind to yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't beat yourself up. Accept what comes your way because that's what's happened rather than being unkind to yourself and self-care, nurture. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very beautiful. Would you like to share your your um, how they could contact you if they need to reach out? Okay. So my um, email is thesingingzookeeper at gmail.com. But I'm also contactable on my website, and that is thesingingzookeeper.com. Very easy. And mm. on the front of that, you will see there is a book here button. So if you wanted to have a consultation where I will very, very quickly run through some of the blocks that you've got, because I can see very quickly into how people are operating. Um, and then if you want to go ahead and do one of the courses or do one to one sessions with me, it can be decided at that point. So it's easy. And look out for me on TikTok and on Instagram and Facebook. Yes. So in your Facebook, it's singing um, Zookeeper. Yeah. And then plus the uh, TikTok, the same account name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And also you have LinkedIn. I don't use LinkedIn that much, actually, but I do have LinkedIn. I ought to start um, revving that up. But yes, so that's on what you're asking me. What, what am I going to do over the next year? <laughs> up my LinkedIn account. <laughs> okay. There we go. Okay. Thank you so much, Lou, for your time. And um, oh my, what a great mission you have that you're impacting other people. And thank you for the the museum that you have started uh, in the Philippines and you're helping my fellow, fellow brothers there <laughs> in the Philippines. Thank you so much. Salamat. Salamat. <laughs> maraming maraming salamat. Okay. So, absolute joy. Yeah, same here. Same here. It was nice connecting with you and um, I've learned and we have learned so much from you. Yeah. Okay, to our tel listeners, to till our next episode, thank you so much. Bye. Yeah.